The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 14th chapter. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the Gospel of our Lord. All right. This may be... Um, the most important selection of scripture for the life of the Christian, um, for the life of our church, our specifically, the life of the church abroad, the entire Christian church made up of all who believe in Jesus Christ and submit to him as Lord. Um, And the reason why is Jesus is asking us to consider the cost of following him. What does it mean? What do you give up, possibly, to follow Jesus? To follow him in the entirety of his truth, his word, everything that he says, what does it mean to follow him? And this is, of course, what he's trying to draw up a, uh, a line between is there are people that like to follow him around and like when he says nice things to them, but then they depart from him when he continues to tell the truth, but it doesn't appear to be nice to them. He says there are three things that we need to consider before we follow Jesus. He insists that you must choose him over even your family, though he would like you to bring them with. You don't have to give up your family. You don't have to hate your family, as Jesus says. He would like you to bring them along. 
But if they won't, then you need to be willing to leave them behind. To us, that's the hardest. But for some reason, back then, it was the first point. And I suppose people did not have as much trouble with that. Number two, he said, you have to be prepared to face suffering and persecution, not in a general sense, but because you follow Jesus, because you hold to his gospel words as true. And three, you need to leave behind what makes you feel safe and secure without Jesus. So if you have things that make you feel like you don't need to follow Jesus because you're doing fine without him, he says you need to get rid of those temptations. And so he begins, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What in the world does this mean? What in the world? Because it sounds terrible. But Jesus said it. And so it's true. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. It, none other does this mean than we must simply prioritize Jesus Christ and his word over everything else. Jesus is speaking in Hebrew hyperbole. So speaking in extremes when he says hate, because he's calling to mind what God says, the Father, in the Old Testament, when he says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, meaning the opposite of choosing. So Jesus says you need to prioritize or choose him if it comes to it over your family. And this means each day as a priority. It means prioritize Jesus uh, higher than your work, higher than how you feel, higher than your children, higher than whatever they might be doing outside of school, higher than even your spouse, higher than yourself, which Jesus says at the end because probably that's the hardest one. It's harder to go against yourself than to go against even your family. For Jesus tells the crowds, he says, who is my family? He says, those who hear God's word and do it. A.K.A. to be a man or woman of principles. Someone who hears God's word, a principle is an axiom outside of yourself that you hold to and you stick to them to judge right and wrong. And then if you stick to them, you are a man or woman of integrity or someone of principles for you've stuck to them. These principles that Jesus would like us to script to keep to are the scriptures. And so we must study them. They must prepare us for what would otherwise be shocking in our life. And so the scriptures tell us you're going to encounter opposition. And so when you do encounter opposition for the sake of Jesus Christ, for holding to his truth, 
and you encounter that opposition, you aren't surprised like your world is coming to an end. For Jesus has prepared you. Do you live out your life by what you're learning here in God's word? Does it take precedence? Are you studying God's word here? If not, Jesus is saying you are unprepared for your daily life because he's telling you what to expect. And so faith in Christ looks like choosing Jesus, prioritizing Jesus above all things, according to what he tells us about himself. Why? Why should we trust what Jesus says we ought to do as opposed to what I want to do? Because I could not carry the cross of my own accord. I could not suffer and not crack. I could not be lied about and not try and set the record straight. I could not die, especially on a cross, for the sins of anyone, let alone myself. And so Jesus does those things for me, for you. But when he dies, he is a perfect sacrifice. How do we know? Because he rose again. Paul writes, death could not contain him. Why? Because he was perfect. So he rises from the dead. And when we have faith in him, we follow him to rising from the dead. And that is the great hope of Christianity. But the seriousness of what Jesus is trying to say here in the hardest text of the lectionary year is that every time you choose to do something else, instead of be with Jesus, you need to be serious with yourself and understand that you are training yourself. You are training your spouse. You are training your family. You are training your children. And you are telling the people out there that whatever you are doing, besides being with Jesus, is more important and more important to you than Jesus. And that's the hard truth of our day and age. Because people that are around you are watching what you do. It's why Jesus calls us witnesses. If we are talking about Jesus Christ and what we learn in the scriptures, we are witnesses to the gospel in what we say and do with our neighbor. If we are not showing that Jesus is the most top priority in our life, then we witness that message to our neighbors and each other, to our children. And then our children grow up or, um, you know, we're on a, it's a bad day and we try to say, well, you know, husband, I did this because Jesus wants us to do it this way. And your husband might say, what do you mean? Why do you care? He doesn't seem to be that important to you in what you say and do. And you don't want to find yourself in that trap. Okay, so he then says, Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This one is maybe the plainest, the most easy to understand, but the hardest to live out. When you become a Christian, I've said this many times, 
So say when you get baptized, say when you have faith, you hear the message, and in the pew you, you say, yes, Lord, I believe, after he calls to you to believe. He creates faith in your heart. Now you have a target on your back for the devil, for the world, for your own sinful flesh to try and get you from following Jesus. Being a Christian, you wake up each day and there are unique things about your life that are crosses, suffering, that you need to carry that no one else is carrying. And you might think that it alienates you and it makes you hard to understand, hard to love. But instead, what does Jesus do is he goes to the cross and dies for your unique suffering that only you think you can understand. And he says, I take that away too, or the results of it he takes away from you, meaning despair, meaning being broken. Jesus takes your offering of a broken heart and he offers it up to the Lord on your behalf and he creates a clean heart in you. The problem is that you don't only encounter suffering out there in the world. You also are a part of a remnant of people who believe in absolute truth. You believe God says that certain things are true or false, right or wrong. And so when you go out into the world, and since the world is called our enemy in the scriptures, you encounter people that are saying that things that are bad are good, or things that are good are bad. And you push back and you say, what do you mean? Jesus says that's good. Or Jesus says that's bad. And what does this earn for you none other than being spoken poorly of? Being perhaps harassed just for a brief moment? Or earning a scarlet letter on your own chest, maybe at work, maybe at the club that you go to on a weekly basis? Who knows? Jesus knows that only you are carrying these unique crosses and comes to you in his word and equips you with his word when you read his word with the lens of your issues, your problems. Because it's an offering up of your problems to the Lord when you read his word through that lens and he speaks to you life-giving words. He burdens himself with your burdens, takes them to death, and they die with him. And he rises again. This is the fundamental uh, idea of baptism. You bring everything into death and baptism, and you bring only out of baptism the new created life of Christ in you. And so Jesus takes a break to explain what he means through two short parables. I'm going to spend a lot of time on the first one, and I'm going to skip the second one because I think it's a retread. He says, which of you, when you desire to build a tower, not something that we always do, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. 
So you are trying to build a church. The church is the body of Christ. You need a foundation, and so you lay it. And thanks be to God, your church has thought this up already. So I have, I present before you the constitution of your church. Uh, Whoever wrote this and signed it, they wrote, uh, for the foundation of your church. We believe the canonical books of the Bible to be the inspired word of God and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. We accept the three creeds as faithful testimonies to the truth of these scriptures, and we believe the confessions of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, as contained in the Book of Concord, to be in agreement with this one scriptural faith. And so, everyone that wanted to become a part of this church, they looked at this and they said, okay, I agree to the authority of the scriptures as interpreted in the Lutheran confessional documents. I'm going to give up my own preference for what I would like to think is right or wrong and defer it to the scriptures of Jesus Christ. And through this way, you build a community of faith. And so now you have your foundation laid of the scriptures. A very strong foundation. What Jesus tells us is unshakable. But now you want to put up cross beams. You want to build walls. You need a load-bearing wall. Because you're starting to build the church itself. And so you have to spell out what it means to be a member of this church. And so they wrote, Baptized Christians who accept and profess the faith proclaimed in these confessions of faith, referring to Article 3, the scriptures, and the Lutheran confessional documents, who reject the errors that they condemn, who desire to share our life together in the body of Christ, are invited to, what? To consult, to talk with the pastor. Why? For it says the pastor is, as the scriptures say, the steward of the mysteries of God. For what reason? Why would we want someone to speak with pastor who desires to be a part of our church because he is the steward of of the mysteries, to speak with him about uniting with us in our ministry of word and sacrament. And so there it is, as the scriptures would like us to do. It turns out that this place has had a load bearing wall for a very long time, and we have always kept it up being a member of our church, agreeing to the same things as laid out in God's scriptures. Here's the spicy meatball of the sermon. There are two ways to come to Christ's altar. There are two ways Nate read the Deuteronomy reading 
where it talks about the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. But both come to this altar. Either everyone comes, no questions asked, or those who have been taught, examined, and absolved come forward. The first has happened here before. The second has happened here before. But which one is the way of the wicked and which one is the way of righteous? Knowing that both end up at the table. To help us have some terms, the first one is called open communion. The second is called closed or some call it close communion. The second one is what is laid out in the constitution of our church. Why? Because they believed that this is what the scriptures was presenting. They believed it could be a load-bearing wall for our church. And so let's dive into why. I'm going to read to you something that you may, have, you may be hearing for the first time. And so I invite you to ask any question that you might have of me after service. So when St. Paul gives the church instructions for the practice of the Lord's Supper, he says, in the following instructions, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you'd like to go there yourself, he says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I do not praise you based on what you're doing. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. When you are doing communion, it is for the worse and not for the better, he says. He says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And, of course, there are some in those divisions that are genuine or correct, and some who are not. And so when he says this, he says in verse 20, When you come together, it turns out it is not the Lord's Supper you are eating. Why does he say this? Because there are divisions among you. And then he says, he sets the record straight in verse 23. He says, for what I have received from the Lord, I deliver to you. And then he gives us the words of institution that I chant, i.e., the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, dot, dot, dot. This is my body, this is my blood given for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Um, And then he says in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's saying when you do the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming what you believe. And so he says, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, this sparks a very terrifying idea. Terrifying if true. We could be doing communion wrong. Are there consequences? He'll tell us in a bit, but he says, verse 28, Therefore, let a person examine himself, and then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What does this look like? Well, in its current state, it looks like me teaching the young, teaching them the faith, examining them when they're through with being taught the faith, um, and then absolving them of their sin for the first time as someone ready to receive communion on their confirmation day, and then they receive communion. What does our church constitution deem to be an appropriate examination or preparation? It says, communicate membership follows upon confirmation or reaffirmation of faith or the public profession of faith or the public profession of faith after transferring from another congregation according to the various contexts and situations of uh, whom would like to apply. And so, therefore, what I'm trying to say is, the end goal is the altar, to receive Christ's body and blood. But how do we get there? It looks like Jesus would like teaching of the faith, examining of the faith, and then the absolution of sin before uh, communion. All right. And so he continues in verse 29. Anyone who eats and drinks of communion without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Judgment meaning... What is this word? Judgment means it's the word anathema. You've heard the word anathema before, yeah? This is the scary word. This is damnation. And so, he says, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And so we judge ourselves so that we will not be judged. We discern the body and the blood before partaking of it so that we do not receive it in an unworthy manner and therefore do not receive damnation. And so, the question is, why doesn't pastor commune my brother, my sister, my child, my aunt, my uncle, when they come to church? And the answer is, sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. But in the instances where I, as the steward of the mysteries, have deemed in this location that someone is not prepared, I would not 
as a pastor, give someone something that is going to be for their damnation. I simply won't allow it. But if it is for their forgiveness of sins, their life, their salvation, they will receive it. And what does that look like? It just looks like chilling out this week and talking to pastor. Maybe we'll come to realize in five minutes that the person should commune. But we can't determine that while the service is going on. Maybe it looks like talking for an hour. Maybe it looks like talking for an hour twice. Who knows? Let's get there. I want to make sure that what Jesus gives to your loved one, your friend, a visitor, is for their benefit and forgiveness of sins and not their damnation. And so I want to be clear, it does not mean I do not think this person is a Christian. It does not mean or it does not mean that I think or we think that the LCMS is the one and only church. It does not mean that I don't think that when they do take communion in another place, maybe it gives them the benefits of the forgiveness of sins. But what it does mean is that I truly believe, according to my vows, that I am doing an act of love by withholding communion from someone who is not in a state of preparation to receive communion. And that most likely, after receiving instruction, this person will receive communion and truly be in unity with us. It does mean that if someone would like to commune, Christ would first have them speak with the man that he left behind in his place to speak with them, instruct them, give them pastoral care, to truly care about their soul. And then that when they make a public profession of faith to walk with us, they will be in true unity and something to truly rejoice over. It means Christ's body is protected as our church from perhaps random people who would like to teach against what we've agreed to teach on. It means that Christ promises to bless and grow our congregation because we are doing his sacrament according to his command. What happens if we do it the other way? That person will, whoever it is, will receive Christ's body and blood. They will receive it. But if we do it in this way that is not as Christ would have us, at its simplest, we have made the Lord's Supper what human beings think it is and not what the Lord has given us. 
It means that the assurance of the benefit of receiving communion, the forgiveness of sins, in the supper, becomes a maybe. It becomes maybe their sins are forgiven instead of this is my body given for you for the forgiveness of sins. It means that our entire public profession of unity in what we say, believe, teach, and confess as scripturally principled people is now not true. It means that when we have someone come up that does not walk with us in the scriptures, we are saying to God that, we, that they are, though they have not yet come to that point of professing that. And at worst, at its worst, if we were to do it the other way, it is me giving communion to someone where it is no longer the best thing that could ever happen to them, but it is a very strong punch in the nose and is damaging to their physical and spiritual health. And as we heard in the Deuteronomy reading, God uses what we do every week in communion to either bless it and build it and strengthen it up, or he could use it from his own admission to remove blessing from it and to dare curse it. And so I will continue to practice your church's tradition, which is based in scripture. I will properly steward the table for the benefit of all who commune here so that everyone who eats and drinks of it will be doing it for their benefit. And I understand that I need to bring this to a close. But I want to leave you with Jesus' words. If salt has lost its saltiness, it is of no use either for fertilizer or for starting another batch of fertilizer. If salt has lost its saltiness, if a church ceases to practice what it has set out to practice, if it walks away from its scriptural principles, Jesus tells us that it is thrown away. If salt has lost its saltiness, its distinctiveness, it will be thrown away. Jesus repeats this in Revelation chapter 3 when he writes to an existing Christian church called the church at Thyratia, a real church in space and time in history that did not care if it was walking alongside what the other churches were believing, teaching, and confessing. Instead, they were living in a gray area. Jesus says to this church, quote, unquote, Church, because you are lukewarm in your beliefs and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, end quote. So, Jesus, what do we do? He says in verse 19, be zealous and repent. 
turn away from what you were doing and walk with the church. Be zealous. What does that mean? Read the scriptures. Apply them to your life. Learn Jesus' doctrines. They will save your life. Jesus sets you apart from the world. Be proud of how he has done so. We must be men and women of our principles. We must act like and show our community that we believe what we've set out to believe and we think that it's true. There's enough out there in the world that people would like you to believe but would not die for it, would not walk away from family for it, and would not suffer for. Let's not be like that. The scriptures are God's word. We should live by these principles because God has promised to bless us when we follow them. He or she who has ears to hear, let them hear.